Hi everybody, Eric from Hit Subscribe here, and um, I am doing yet another post in the series about freelancer Q&A. This one is, um, how do I improve my win rate on sales calls? Uh, so, I don't, this is kind of interesting, because I think it's a question that's not a beginner question. Like, as a beginner, you wouldn't think to ask this, but it's, like, understandable by beginners, so we're kind of uh, ticking all the boxes here today. Um, and basically, so what is a win rate? This is slang for um, uh, what's the percentage of, let's say, sales calls that you have that result in actual business. So for every, you know, 10 sales calls that you do, maybe you get two customers, then you have a 20% win rate. Um, so having established what that is, let me back up a little bit before I address this specific question and talk about kind of win rate and what's known as the sales funnel across the board, just for context for people. So um, when we're talking about a sales funnel, you know, you picture something that's shaped like this, and the reason that it's shaped like this is because people drop off at each sequence. So let me describe a very simple sales funnel to you just for the <clears throat> sake of conversation here. Um, imagine that every time you as a freelancer get business, what happens is the conversation starts off with somebody emailing you, and then you go back and forth over email, so that's maybe stage one of your funnel. Uh, then stage two of the funnel is over email, what you're doing with this back and forth is looking to set up a, a sales call. You're gonna have a call with this prospective customer and talk through the particulars of the engagement. So that phone call would be stage two of your funnel, um, and then stage three would be they become an actual customer. And the reason it's shaped like a funnel is because you're always going to have more people at the top and then less at each subsequent stage. So if you imagine that for every 20 um, emails you get, um, maybe 15 of them result in calls. Some of them won't, like some people will email you and then they'll just ghost you after an email or two or whatever. Um, for whatever reason, it won't become a call. Um, then of the people that eventually become prospects that get on the phone with you, uh, some percentage of them will not become customers. So maybe you started with 20 prospects, 15 of them got on a phone call with you, and of those 15, five became customers. So what that means is you have overall a 25% win rate. You had 20 customers and a quarter of them, five became, or 20 prospects over email, and a quarter of them, five, became uh, customers. And then at the stage um, where they go from, um, email to call, 20 uh, and 15 total do it. So you have a 75% conversion rate to that next step. And then um, call the customer, uh, 15 goes down to five, so you have a 33% conversion rate. Uh, and then your, your win rate on the call is 33%. So um, conversion rate, win rate, I guess these things can be tossed around interchangeably. But the idea is that um, at the widest level of people that ever become prospects, each kind of subsequent stage in the sequence of events that take place up into a sale has this idea of a conversion percentage. So um, it's modeled as being shaped like a funnel to represent that you lose people at each stage. And so um, the reason all of this matters is because you can actually work backwards in a very data-driven fashion if you're in business long enough. If you understand that everyone you talk to on the phone, um, let's say that 25% of the people you talk to on the phone become customers, and um, you know half the people you email with get on the phone, 
you can work backwards and say, well, okay, if I want one customer, I need to have four sales calls, and to have four sales calls, that means I need eight emails coming in. So you can actually, um, once you have some data and some experience to draw on, you can start to really um, take a very rational and logical approach to how many leads you need to generate in order to get the kind of business that you want. So all of that is backstory. Um, what the person really is asking about here, I believe, um, is win rate, uh, which I think I hear most in terms of the last stage where you're having a call or even sending a proposal and um, converting that person to a customer. So I think that's the issue here. How do I get more people that I'm on the phone with to actually become customers? So let me address that. But I do want to kind of back up and say, um, if you're reasoning about your entire sales process, you can deconstruct it and see where you're falling down. So it could be that once you get on the phone with somebody, almost everybody you get on the phone with closes, but for some reason you're just not able to get people who you're emailing with to get on the phone with you. Well, then you want to address that email to phone call thing and start to brainstorm about how could you do better bringing more people onto the phone versus if the reverse situation were true and everyone emailing you did a phone call, but nobody you had a phone call with wanted to do business, uh, you have a different problem than the email to phone. Um, so it really behooves you to actually break down your uh, entire sales sequence so that you can analyze which step is proving to be a problem here because then you can do a more targeted solution than just like what a lot of newbie freelancers will say is like, I, I don't know how to get business. What do I do to get business? Well, if you have an actual sequence of events, you can deconstruct that into smaller problems. So the problem that we're talking about today is let's assume that you are able to get phone calls and um, that's not converting to wins. Um, what can you do about that? Well, speaking from experience here, um, this is a little bit broad because it could be something that, like, I, I don't know, maybe you're, like, interpersonally horrible. I mean, I'm not actually saying that, but, like, if, for instance, you were just, like, boorish on the phone, uh, you know, improve your manners or something. Um, so rather than kind of speculate about everything under the sun that could cause a poor win rate once you're on the phone, um, I'll speak to some things, uh, tips and tricks I've picked up over the years that, you know, could maybe help. So one of the biggest epiphanies that I had over the course of time, well, actually, let me start with a different thing, and I'll come back to this. Um, the first thing that I would say is kind of like to, to go back into a little bit of what I was saying is uh, before you do anything, if you're not measuring your win rate, I mean, it sounds like you, the person asking the question, are, but if you're not anyone listening, then you should start measuring this. Just it, It's not like, oh, man, it just feels like people don't do business with me. Um, once we get off the phone, quantify that, like see what your win rate is. And maybe the uh, first thing to bear in mind is it isn't uncommon to have a sub 50% win rate. And depending on the nature of what you're selling, if you're answering RFPs, it can be way lower than that. So measure it and then um, maybe do a little bit of research, um, depending on how expensive what you're selling is, uh, how competitive and red ocean it might be, and a few different factors. Try to do some research and figure out like what you might even expect a win rate to be. Because if you're expecting it to be 100%, that's not how the world works. Um, you know, if you were formerly a salaried employee, think of like going on job interviews. You know, you do uh, I don't know five interviews, get one offer. I don't know exactly what the ratio is, but think of it in those terms potentially. So you're not going to close everybody that gets on the phone with you first and foremost. Now, let's assume you actually do have a pretty poor win rate. Um, what can you um, do to improve it? So one of the things um, that I would suggest doing 
is uh, a little more holistic and it's to have a sales process. So um, what a lot of newbie freelancers will do is kind of get flat-footed and really passive about uh, sales conversations. So um, because I come from the application development world, let's say you're a programmer, you go off on your own, you're freelancing, and somebody calls you up and they're like, hey, I need a Ruby developer to you know, do X, Y, and Z. And you kind of get into note-taking mode and you listen and you ask some questions and um, they kind of drive the whole conversation. They might even be running this like a job interview, like, hey, I'm talking to five people, you're one of them, what are your background, or what is your background, what are your skills, and so on and so forth. This is the opposite of having a process. So this is just you kind of letting the client trample all over you with their process. I have heard somebody in the sales world, I think it might have been a sales consultant we hired at one point, say like, somebody is going to have an organized process on your sales calls, and if it isn't you, it's going to be the client. And what that means is um, if you don't structure things and dictate how it's going to go, the client will. And when that happens, you're going to have a low win rate because essentially it's uh, you and a bunch of other people. Um, the client's really setting the terms. And there's a subtle psychological difference. Um, if you're letting the client run roughshod over you, it doesn't seem like you know what you're doing. They think of you more like as a staff augmentation or basically like a pseudo-employee which is I'm the boss, you're the prospective applicant, I'm going to tell you what I need, and then I'm going to judge whether you are good enough. If on the complete flip side of things you do like what, say, we do with Hit Subscribe, um, you have a very um, kind of regimented sales process. First we do this, I need the following information, can you fill out this form, we're going to book a date a week out, once we do that, here are the agenda items we go over at this call, after that we schedule a second call, I'll run you through a slide deck, so there is nothing in the world of sales that I do where I'm on, I don't know, anywhere from two to six sales calls a week, uh, and those all run the same. Like it almost feels and seems like I'm giving a talk at a conference that I give over and over again. So on the very flip side of being in passive mode and letting the clients run that, if you are actively running this, there is a psychological, um, I guess, comfort factor for you as a salesperson. There's also the client who flips over and says, oh, okay, I see you do this a lot. I'm interested, like, let me hear about your process. Explain to me how this works. You come across more confident and you certainly come across more experienced and that can really help with a win rate. Uh, a second thing that I've picked up over the years, this one was the epiphany I started to talk about earlier, but um, what I would absolutely recommend doing for service-based high-ticket sales like freelancing is um, split your sales process up into actually two calls. And that may seem counterintuitive, but the first one is going to be a discovery call. And then you're gonna, all you're gonna do is listen to the client's problems during that time. You probably wanna come up with a kind of a script of like things you wanna ascertain in order to be able to write a proposal. So you have a discovery call. It's mostly the client just dumping their bucket, telling you what they need. And then after that call, if it makes sense, if it's a good fit, as I've talked about, uh, in other videos here before, but if it's a good fit and it makes sense, you will reconvene and walk the client through a proposal on a second call. And I think the reason that this proves to be so valuable um, is that that first call to get them on, um, if the call is both a pitch and trying to understand their problem, so you're going to do some discovery and then pitch to them, your pitch is going to seem off the mark if it doesn't perfectly align with what they need. Or if you kind of tailor it on the fly, you're going to seem like you're making things up. 
So you need that time to hear what they're saying, digest, and then put together a concrete proposal for how you can handle their specific problem. Um, I think that uh, it was counterintuitive because you'd think having more calls would give them more opportunity to drop off, but that's rarely the case. Now, you have to manage this dynamic, so one of the things I would recommend is on the discovery call, if you feel like you can help, while you're on that call, book the second follow-up call. Don't kind of, you know, hang up and then reach out a week later about scheduling. Like, keep the momentum you've got on that call, but um, I would definitely do it into two different calls because on that first call, the client won't feel like they're being pitched to. They'll feel like they're being listened to. Um, Follow-up advice, when you get on that second call and you're doing a proposal, you want to restate things that that client has told you um, or that prospect has told you on the sales call. Uh, record, uh, or sorry, on the discovery call. Record that call if you can and quote back to them things that they've said verbatim. You want to make them feel listened to and like the proposal that you're presenting to them is um, based entirely on you having heard them. So you don't want it to be just stock and rote. You maybe want to start with a recap. Here's what we talked about before. Um, here are the problems that you said that you're having. Correct me if I'm wrong, I'm restating this to make sure we understand each other. Uh, that's a tactic that works quite well. So have these two separate calls. On the second call, my recommendation would be that you have a deck, the um, slide deck that you run through, or some manner of presentation. So you are walking them through how you work and then presenting proposal options based on how you work um, that you think would make sense for them. So um, you want to have that structure that I mentioned before, and you want it to you know, get polished, something you can rehearse. If you have a slide deck, you're going to make sure that you're uh, covering all the talking points that you want. You're going to make sure you can um, address the questions they might have that come up. You might put an FAQ uh, section in there somewhere. Again, um, that kind of indicates that you've done this a lot before. It addresses their concerns before they can raise them. It makes you look polished. Um, other things you can do. I, I, I don't do this anymore, but I used to. Uh, record your calls at first, assuming it's okay with the prospect, and then listen to yourself. It's utterly brutal to listen to yourself do sales. Uh, fight through that because it will be informative. You will see where you hem and haw. You will see where you're being confusing. You will see where you're losing the person you're talking to because it's hard to understand that in the moment. So you will see all kinds of flaws that can help you um, take notes so that you can improve your delivery. Um, so it's just like any other skill that you develop. Sales is a skill, and the more you're watching your presentations, watching yourself in action, the better at it you will get. Um, so you want it to be structured, buttoned up, um, and the more polished you get it, the better. You don't want to come off as slick, but you want to come off as, um, you know, you know what you're doing, you do this all the time. One verbal tactic that I do a lot is if I use the same example or the same metaphor on sales call after sales call, which I do, there are a number of different things that I say so often I feel like I'm doing an act. Uh, but I kind of lean into that and I say, like, you know, this is the example I always give. It'll feel, you know, like uh, somebody will sense when you're a little more polished. And so you're kind of like saying, yeah, you know, I talk about this all the time. I always say X. Um, so you can disarm that really rote, um, uh, overly polished feeling by doing stuff like that. Um, maybe the final piece of advice that I can give, uh, at least off the cuff, is... When you're presenting proposal options, have and present three um, is the recommended number I do. Two can be okay, but I think three is the best. And with three, you're going to have kind of the 
light option, the middle option, and then the absolute moonshot home run option. Now the reason you want to have multiple options and not just say this is my proposal is because if you go to a client and say I propose X, what is the question that that client is going to ask? The question is should I do this or not? If you lay out three different options side by side or sequentially one after another, um, the client starts to think which of these options do I want to do? So now they're not asking whether they should work with you, they're asking how they should work with you. And that's a subtle but profound um, flip in how they're thinking. So I would give them some options. And I won't go into too much detail, I guess, about how to construct those options, but I would have them build on each other in terms of like price and scope. So that can be a nice way to adjust uh, according to their budget. <clears throat> Excuse me, especially if um, you don't know going in, you haven't ascertained on the discovery call what their budget is. Uh, which, by the way, is um, hard to navigate. So if you're talking to somebody on a sales call to come out and say, what's your budget, can feel a little gauche or presumptuous. Um, it can be done. You know, I don't know, maybe I'll do like advanced <laughs> sales call techniques. Um, but often you won't know their budget. So um, in addition to giving them multiple options for how to work with you, the, um, the different price points can be a hedge against not knowing their budget. Um, Come to think of it, I'm trying to think of like post-sales call what you can do because um, it's not just that you have to be good on the sales call to get the win. They have to, you know, maybe give some thought to the proposal. Um, so what would you do after the call where, you know, you have this great proposal and they're saying, we're kind of thinking we might go with option two, but I'm going to go, you know, talk to my manager and see and then we'll get back to you. Um, after that, you can have people ghost or there's, there's still ways things can go wrong even after an encouraging uh, proposal call. So one thing I'd recommend is in advance, ideally, work out uh, maybe two or three different reasons to reach back out to them. One of them that's pretty easy to do is you can generate a proposal with an expiration date that says, you know, this proposal is good for two weeks and you can explain that um, you tend to try to fill up your dance card and uh, you don't make proposals last long because you have, you know, obligations in the future or whatever. Um, so if your proposal expires after two weeks, that's one logical point to reach back out after like 10 days and say, hey, are you interested or not? A no is okay. I just want to know so I don't bother you anymore, but your proposal is going to expire. Um, another thing might be, you know, maybe you have a stock thing that you send out, like some uh, testimonials or whatever, and you can forget to include that on your uh, proposal presentation. And you can say, oh, hey, by the way, um, this might interest you. Whatever you do, whenever you reach out, you should always be offering some kind of value. You should have a reason. You shouldn't annoy people. So you have this great call. A week later, you haven't heard from them. And you reach out and you say, hey, just checking in. There's no value add to the prospect for that. You're just satisfying your own neurosis and desire for the business. You aren't offering them anything. So what you're going to want is maybe a reason or two even if you have to kind of manufacture it, to reach back out and offer them something. Um, and then, you know, uh, sorry, things are just kind of occurring to me as I go along. I probably won't have too many more. I'm running out of my bag of tricks. Uh, but another good one is um, to, and I actually got this from a, a guy who we hired as a sales consultant like a year ago, and it was great advice. It kind of blew my mind, but it's so true, and I've learned from experience. Give them permission to say no, because a lot of people, if you're running through these three proposal options and they're all way too expensive, they're going to feel bad. They won't want to tell you that. So they'll kind of be like, oh, we'll think about it. 
and then that maybe just lingers. And if it's a hard no, if it's never going to happen, better you know about that right away than waste your time and theirs with a bunch of follow-up emails. They stay in your CRM, maybe you're reaching back out to them four months later, and it was never going to happen. That's a waste of everyone's time. So you could say something like, I say variants of this all the time, like, look, you're not going to offend me if you say no. We have plenty of business, you know, whatever the case may be. I'm booked, uh, you know, something to hopefully accurately communicate that you're not desperate. Um, like, for instance, with the business that we're doing, we're always happy to have new business. We're not in any dire need of um, any incremental business. So I'm being honest when I say, like, look, you're not going to offend me. We're pretty busy. If, if, if this isn't the right time for you or we don't make sense for you, you know, that's fine. Um, uh, I think the line I got from the consultant was like, yes is great, no is good too. And the reason no is good too is because it, it circumvents that waste of time. I'd rather be going out after um, uh, people where it mutually makes sense than wasting my time on people that are never going to say yes. So post-sales call, you know, have ways to keep that line of communication productively open, but also encourage them to be honest and, you know, take no for an answer so you can move on to the next thing that you're going to do. So I think all of that together is at least a series of tips, tricks, tactics um, for improving the sales win rate. Um, and I think the one about, you know, kind of getting rehearsed, like having a sequence of steps that you walk through watching yourself on a recording, learning, practicing, etc. That's going to cover a lot of ground that I mentioned in the beginning when it's like super wide open, like maybe you're just boorish. Uh, hopefully you'll be able to kind of self-assess um, as you practice. Uh, you could also ask feedback, you know, you could practice your sales pitch on sort of a neutral but friendly party, a buddy or something. Um, so I guess holistically I'd say treat it like a skill and maybe some of the tips, tricks, and tactics that I gave you, you can work in there as you're practicing and treating it like a skill uh, to good effect. So hopefully that helps. Hopefully you incorporate some of that and it improves the old win rate. And uh, yeah, I will catch you next time.